Thank you, Alan. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and open up to the book of Romans. It's where we're going to begin. However, we're going to go with quite a few scriptures today, so you'll be digging around in, in, your, in your word as well. I, you know, many of us go through life either thinking that we know the rules or, or we just maybe just simply ignore them and just go on and do what we want to do. Uh, maybe they don't pertain to us or, uh, you know, really we're not going to do anything that would be really illegal, right? I mean, that's just the way we are. We, but we ask ourselves, what difference do rules make? I mean, why does anybody have to have rules anyway? I mean, can't we just do what we want to do? As we were raising our children, Marisa would often say to our, our oldest child, our son, John David, don't do anything, whether it was in school or whatever, don't do anything that they're going to have to make a rule about. Right? And, I, and I would respond, don't do anything that's going to embarrass your mother. Right? So there's always rules out there, even though we tend to either skirt them at times, or we may be fully engaged in, in obedience to them. But we respond, why is it that we have to read all these things and know all these things? Well, in 2013, Apple Corporation, they upgraded their operating system on their phones to iOS 7. Anybody have an iPhone, Apple? Did you ever have the iOS 7 operating system? Well, let me tell you a little bit about this. All right, everyone had this, this, this iPhone, they just dutifully clicked accept the terms and conditions. Obviously, you always read terms and conditions, right? That's, that's what, this, was, uh, this came out as a result of the Apple iPhone iOS 7 that was later put out on, on uh, the internet. And so someone posted a screenshot of page 46. Apparently, buried deep within the terms and conditions um, was these, these statements. Oh, you know what? This is page 46. Nobody's still reading this. I bet only about five people clicked to read the TNCs in the first place. We might as well just say anything we like. Tony on floor five of Apple HQ smells of sardines. When, <laughs> when someone sends a funny email around the office, we have to reply with, I laughed. It's in our job description. Remember that legal kerfuffle over Apple and Apple Studios? Want to know how we fixed it? We bought the Beatles. We have the surviving ones come and sing to us for scraps, and we're looking at ways to reanimate the dead ones. The canteen only sells Apple products. Apples, apple juice, apple flapjacks, toffee apples. We get fired if we're caught anything without apples in it. I'm allergic to apples, and I'm always hungry. Alan, this is good for you, too. We faked the moon landings. We did it in 2008, then brainwashed you all to believe that it happened in 1969 just because we could. And if anyone thinks, finds out I've leaked this information, I'll be killed, but no one will ever, ever read this. <laughs> I'd love to tell you that page 46 really exists in Apple's terms and conditions. Well, I'm sure there probably is a page 46, but it wasn't this. This actually was... A joke that was printed out on the internet 
from a, a group of guys from the Huffington's Post United Kingdom comedy team, and it sent it out all across the world. However, in 2017, students at the York University in Toronto and students at the University in Connecticut, they were offered a chance to, to join a new social network called Name Drop. Now, only about a fourth of the students from those colleges signed up for this, this name drop. And they said they, they looked at the terms and conditions because they clicked yes. But that doesn't mean they really read the terms and the conditions because by clicking, accepting those things, those terms, hundreds of students agreed to give name drop their future firstborn children. Luckily, the students were subjects in experiment by these two professors of communication who authored this paper about the biggest lie on the Internet. They weren't really going to get their firstborn children. All right? It amazes me how people go through life just ignoring those things which can bring serious consequences and change to your future. And that perspective on life has been the same through the years. So Paul is going to continue his letter here in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21, discussing the problem that the Jews were having with putting their faith in Jesus. So he begins by letting us know that there are some prerequisites for faith. All right. So Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I think there are four links that are tied into this, this, this prerequisite of faith. Um, the first one is this, and Paul kind of puts them almost in reverse order as he writes them out. But the first one we see in Romans 14, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Calling on him is, is that we talked about last week, the good confession, where we call on the name of the Lord, we proclaim him to be Jesus as Lord, all right? He mentions that in chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, when he said, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The confession of faith, the confession and faith are naturally linked together. All right? However, faith must precede our confessing. People just don't simply say that Jesus is Lord and not believe it. At least <laughs> I find that difficult for them to acknowledge Him as the Son of God without truly understanding that in their heart. Right? So they call on the one who can save. There's a reference here to faith in verse 14. It says, in whom. That word in is a powerful word because he uses the language of, of trust that we need to believe in someone. Last week we talked about faith being a, a, an assent or an acknowledgement, all right? And also a trust, and those two things go hand in hand. We, we have to believe in someone. 
Now, the other three things that are listed in this section of, of Scripture here, they're, they're not simultaneous, but they're, in essence, sequential. There are things that have to go when we put our faith in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, then we call upon Him. And after we have believed and we have called upon Him, then we receive salvation. It's not the other way around, that you're saved, and then finally you come around to believing Him. Faith has to precede all these things. The second thing he says here in verse 14 is, how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? How can you believe in somebody that you don't even know? So hearing the Word is also a necessary prerequisite of faith. Now, there can be hearing without faith. I mean, I can hear something and totally disregard it and not believe it. But there cannot be faith without hearing. Hearing has to come into play. All right. So once the Word is heard, now the person who has heard that is responsible for what they do with it either acknowledging it and accepting it or refusing it and rejecting it. Jesus makes this parable as he's trying to describe this very thing about the Word of God as it's being presented to people in the world. So he tells a parable in Matthew chapter, eight, chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. And then he says this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, and in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty now, what Jesus is talking about is when the Word of God is, is sown like seed out into the world. And where it falls are the hearts of people. All right? And how we receive that Word depends on how we either grow in it or die apart from it. So we're talking about the Word of the Gospel, which today is this good news about Jesus Christ. The third thing that Paul says here in verse 14, it says, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? God has chosen to communicate His Word and His saving message of salvation to people around our world through what we might call intermediaries or messengers or preachers. He's going to use people to take the message around the world. Now, in Paul's day, that intermediary was a missionary or an apostle. Uh, they were the messenger that went out uh, into the world, and, and they were the evangelists that were proclaiming the Word of God as they would meet people in the streets and in the synagogues and in the marketplace, and they would just talk and communicate. They would use it in an oral transition. 
Today, the messengers use a variety of different ways to communicate the wonderful news about Jesus. Not only are we supposed to talk with our lips and use our mouth to confess this, but we do other things as well. We've got easy access to, to, to write books and to, and to put things in newspapers and articles and magazines. And we have the ability to utilize the internet and its vastness to communicate things and spread it all around the world instantaneously. It's amazing what we have today that they did not have back then. But Paul concludes with this. He says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's what he says in verse 15. And it reflects the fact that not all Christians really have the same gifts. Some people, they just aren't good communicators. And so they may not be one that's going to stand before a group of people and speak boldly the message about Christ. Maybe they have other gifts as well. And so Paul says this, that he says some people are evangelists and they're set apart for the vocational use of spreading the gospel message. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, He gave to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And he tells us that some people have the gift of exhorting one another. Others may have another kind of gift. Maybe your gift is you don't communicate well with your words, but you communicate well with your wallet, right? We, we do that, don't we? I mean, that's one of the ways that we try to convince people to boycott things, right? Don't go to that store because they do this, or don't support this. Because... And so we use our wallet to speak. Well, in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes out for us a list of different gifts. He says if your gift is service, if it's service, we do it in our serving. And the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in his generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, in this, in this case where he's talking about the gifts Maybe your ability is finances, and you've got resources available at your beck and call that you can do things for the kingdom of God financially that maybe you are not comfortable with doing orally through your own words. As a church, we use our finances as well as sending out preachers into the world and missionaries to take the gospel message. Just recently, we had a couple of our high school girls that asked you all if they could have your help and support to go to Poland this summer. They're going to work with taking the gospel message to children and teens over in Poland and those who are coming out as refugees from Ukraine. And you resounded with an emphatic, yes, we'll send you. And you have sent more than enough to send these young ladies for their trip to go. This is a short-term mission, an opportunity they have to take the message of the gospel somewhere else on the other world that you may never ever visit. We have ministries in Mexico, and so next week we're having a group that's planning on going down to Mexico City area to take with them from us the gospel message to work and to serve with their hands and with their ability to share the gospel with the children and with people there in Mexico. We've got a group that we support in Congo and Africa that we send finances to so that they have the resources available to take the message of Jesus everywhere within that community. 
You see, the message has got to go, and somebody has to be sent. In 1988, I stood not on this stage, but back here on this stage. The stage has kind of grown some since 1988. But this church ordained me into ministry and sent me out. And for 35 years, I was gone, preaching and teaching. But I'm back by God's grace and His blessing. We've got to continue to raise up people and send them out into the world because this is the only way they're going to accept the knowledge of who Jesus is in their faith by believing when the word is preached. Let's keep sending people with the gospel. So who does the sending? Well, first off, it's God. He's the one who has sent. We see that here in John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Right? And then we read in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But it's not just God who sends people out into the world with this message. We're the ones who have to send people out into this world with the message, all right? It's us as well. The church has this responsibility send people out as evangelists, as preachers, as missionaries. And so we've got to do that. We support a lot of ministries, not just locally here within our community, but around the world as well. We're doing things with trying to take the gospel message out from among here. And we do that through our financial support, by establishing accountability through ordination, as in my part. Nowhere in Romans is this set forth more plainly than right here in this chapter that Paul is writing in this letter. Faith and belief in the gospel depend on hearing it. And this requires somebody speaking it. Faith and belief in the gospel depends on hearing and preaching requires ministers and evangelists and missionaries carrying the good news around the world. The preacher must be sent. We as a church have got to continue to raise up people and send them into all parts of the world. Jesus even commanded us to pray that God will send forth workers into the fields for the harvest is ripe and ready. So he says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, when he was talking with his disciples, he said, Look, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, he tells them to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So there's value placed on the preaching of the good news. And so he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7. It was originally referred to the messengers during the time about 536 BC apparently around, around, around that time that the Babylonian captivity was taking place but they were about 
to be released to go back to Jerusalem. So they sent out messengers out into the world, and they were going to tell this message to specifically those who had still were living around Jerusalem in the ruins after the city had been destroyed, bringing to them the good news that they're coming back. That God is going to rebuild this city of Jerusalem. Now, that historical event symbolizes the same thing that's going on today. God is sending out messengers into the world to let them know that freedom has come and He is going to build His new Jerusalem. So get ready. It's coming. Today, that message is transmitted, but not just necessarily by feet, but it's transmitted in various ways. So how beautiful are the voices that are heard over the radio. How beautiful are the the fingers of those who type the gospel message or write out the story and the letter to somebody to read. How beautiful are those who, who do things to communicate the truth of who Jesus is to our world. Now, so the question is about this statement, how beautiful are they? Well, I think there's two things. First off, this word beautiful shows the importance of the role of the messenger who's taking it. But that word beautiful, it's, it's translated from the word horar, which means in our language, hour. So it's about time. It's not about what we, when we're thinking beautiful in, in the essence of, you know, looks so what it's, what it's probably indicating to us is, is that how beautiful it is that something is happening at the right time. Maybe even suggesting that the messengers ro- arrived with this wonderful news when the people needed it the most. Perfect timing. Beautiful timing. You get it? So he's quoting here in Old Testament passage, Paul is affirming that the good news has been preached to Israel. They can't plead ignorance in this because when they needed to hear it, they heard it. But there's a problem that's presented. Most of the Jews who've heard the message about Jesus, they have not believed in that gospel message. So listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Paul's quoting Isaiah 53, verse 1, where God is specifically applying the statement to the Jewish nation. Remember those four links earlier I mentioned, all right, that were covering the gap between God offering his salvation and man's acceptance of it, that they need to hear that somebody has to go that they have to believe, all right? Now, someone has to be sent, the preaching of the good news, the hearing and the faith has to go into it. But what Paul is saying is they broke that fourth link of the chain. They didn't obey it. They didn't believe it. Somebody was sent to them. They heard the message, all right? It was preached to them, but they've refused to believe it and acknowledge it. Now, he's already pointed out in Romans 9, verse 6 and 27, that there are still a few of the Jewish people. There's this, what he calls, a remnant, 
who have accepted that Jesus is the Christ, and they've obeyed the gospel message, and they're following him faithfully. Now, while Paul is using this passage from Isaiah to apply it to his generation and ultimately to ours, it was also true of the people back in the time when Isaiah was speaking it and writing it. There were a lot of people, even in Isaiah's day, who were listening to the message about God, and they were saying, forget it. They were just saying, yeah, we'll accept and not read it, but not living by it at all. So he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now he uses that same language when he writes to the church in Thessalonica and 2 Thessalonians when he's talking about how Jesus is going to come with his mighty angels on that day of judgment and what he's going to do. And so he writes it by saying that Jesus will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. You see, we've heard, we've understood the message, and for those of us who've accepted that and are living in obedience to that, we look forward to Jesus coming. But to those who are rejecting Him, when He comes, it's not going to be a good thing for them. In comparison, Luke writes to us of the increase of those who are obedient to the faith. He says, there were some who were even priests in Jerusalem at the temple who left their practice of worship in the temple and became Christians. Listen, he says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then he says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Obeying the gospel is Paul's way of saying how one becomes a Christian. It includes not only the hearing, but believing, repenting, confessing with our mouth that He is Lord, being baptized into His name, and then living a life of obedience to that, not just saying, yeah, I've done it, so I'm saved. We continue to live out a life of faith. In fact, the obedience to the gospel, we might even classify as a test of our salvation. Paul says to, to look at how they're living. Does their spirit and does their actions measure up? Faith is gonna, or James is going to say, you've got faith, that's great, but what are you doing about it? How are you demonstrating your faith? We've got to show it by the things that we do. You see, we were created to do things of good works. Paul's going to tell the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared in advance beforehand that we should walk in them. Now see, these good works are, our, in essence, our sanctification. It's, it's God is working and, and building us up into being coming more, more holy and being more like Him. It, it is evidenced in how we are living in the good works that we're doing we're not saved by our works, but because we are saved, we do good works. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, the quote from Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us, is applied to the Jews and is intended to be answered, not many. <laughs> They're not believing us. 
So the Apostle John made this statement in John chapter 12, verse 37 and 38. Though he, that's Jesus, had done so many signs, those are the miracles in which he performed, since he did so many of these signs before them, they still did not believe him. Can you imagine watching Jesus raise up a man who's been lame his entire life, and all of a sudden, in an instant, he's walking? Somebody who's never spoken, they speak. Somebody who's never seen, they now have sight. Somebody who was dead comes back to life. They're witnessing these things, and they still did not believe him, John says. He says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Paul told us in Romans chapter 10, the first three verses, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, remember, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, the Jews have subjected themselves, they have not subjected themselves to God's righteousness, and they have not responded to the prophetic word that was preached to them. They've heard it, but they've rejected it. Why haven't they done that? Well, it's a personal problem. It's, it's the individual issue that each one of them have. And, and maybe it might be something that we're struggling with ourselves. So he tells us here in verse 17 through 21, he writes, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Well, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. So how does a person come to faith? Well, Paul says there in verse 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the words of Christ. Before anybody can put their faith in Jesus, they have to hear about Him. It's not just going to happen by some general revelation that all of a sudden they go, oh, there's a Jesus out there. Somebody has to take the message to them. That somebody is you and me. We're called to take this message. Paul says that faith is our response to hearing the word of Christ. Remember Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, it's the free decision of our will, then, to believe that message and act upon it. He says, the word of Christ, the word of, is in its genitive form, all right, in language. 
right? Which can mean the word of Christ, or it can also mean the word about Christ, or the word from Christ. There's different ways of translating that. If it means the word about Christ, well, we know that to be the gospel message, all right? If it's the word from Christ, in the sense, it is something that he says to us that we learn. John tells us in John chapter 16, verse 24, that Jesus said this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, it's probably intended to be both the word about Christ, which is the good news, and the word from him, which is what he wants us to hear. And so the Spirit then works in us and enables us to understand what Jesus wants us to know. The fact that this word is about Christ shows that in the New Testament era, every person cannot come to a saving faith in Jesus by any other means except through him. And that reinforces Paul's point in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And it confirms the church's absolute need to continue to send out people into the world as missionaries and as preachers and as teachers, to take with them the gospel message. Now, as we've seen here in the John 16 text, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables the inspired apostles to speak the word of Christ that was taught to them and has continued to be taught today through the gospel message that's presented in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9-13, through 13, Paul says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things, listen, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Second Peter, Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, there is no prophecy of Scripture that comes from someone's own interpretation. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have confidence to know that the Word of God in which we hand, this is not just something that some guy sat down and made up. The words that were written here were written intentionally because the Spirit had placed it upon the apostles' minds to write. So there's truth in here that's to lead us to our salvation. Now, unfortunately, not everybody who hears the Word of God allows it to settle in and they take it to heart. From the Word to do its work, we must think about it, we must consider it, we must meditate upon it, understand it, accept it as true, and then act upon it 
Remember our passage in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower? Right? He talks about throwing the seed out into different paths, and where it lands really is the heart of an individual and how they receive it or not. It's upon us to take the gospel message in our own life individually as a personal issue for us to what we're going to do. The Jewish people, however, they did not all obey the gospel. Some of them rejected it and refused to acknowledge and accept Jesus. Paul's point goes on even deeper than that. He's just not pointing out their disobedience, but he's insisting that their unbelief is their own fault. There's only one who's responsible for their lost condition, and it's the individual himself. Now maybe some people might think that Paul is too harsh because maybe they really didn't get a chance to hear the truth about who Jesus is. But Paul insists they've all heard it. They all know about Jesus. In that generation, they all knew about Him, but they refused to acknowledge Him. So he brings in a couple of other witnesses. He's going to bring in Moses, and he's going to bring in Isaiah to, to back up what he has to say. So here we have in Romans 10, 18 and 20, he says, I ask, have they not heard? Well, he says, indeed they have heard. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? He says, no, they understood because Moses told them about this. Moses first said, he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So even Moses was telling them, God's going to make you jealous because he's going to take his heart and he's going to extend it to people who aren't a part of your nation. And you're going to get angry about it. And boy, did they. But then he brings in Isaiah. And he says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So here we have in verse 19, Paul is quoting Psalm 19, verse 4, where it says, The voice goes out through all the earth and the words to the ends of the world, and them he has set a tent for their son. Now he's referring specifically to the Gentiles and, and us, that we've understood that there is a God just by general revelation, by looking through the telescopes and seeing the stars in a distance. We're discovering the beauty and the creativeness of God and who He is. Paul has already mentioned that in, back in Romans chapter 1. But he quotes it here as applying it now to this Christian age, to the, to the preaching of the gospel message to the world especially to the Jewish communities that have been scattered around the world. He cites in verse 19, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, where it says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So since the Jews are rejecting Jesus, God is saying, but my plan from the very beginning, you go back and talk with Moses and you talk with Isaiah, and you can all go back and talk to Abraham. My plan from the very beginning has been that I am going to reach out to the Gentiles as well, to us. But the Jews have wanted to keep God to themselves because He is their God. Now Paul is using this reference here to the Gentiles to point out that He wants everyone to come into a relationship with Him. That should give the Jews more reason to accept Jesus as Messiah because he's even fulfilling what Moses and Isaiah talked about. 
In verse 20, Paul references Isaiah 65, 1, when it says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, when Isaiah wrote that, it was being applied to the Jews of his day. But the Holy Spirit takes it deeper, and he applies it to us in our generation as well. The point's the same then as it is today. That if even Gentiles can hear and understand the gospel message of Jesus, the Jews should be able to as well. But even though they heard it, they don't want to believe it. It's evident when I take some trips to Israel and you see everything that's written there scripturally, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, but a majority of the people who are Jewish in Israel, they still refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah. Paul says in verse 21, but of Israel he says, all day long I have held about my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It shows that God has made every effort to bring the Jews into this relationship within his new kingdom of Christ. However, the Jews' disbelief is not their fault of ignorance. Rather, it's because they're disobedient and contrary. That word contrary comes from a Greek word that means to speak against, to oppose, or to deny. It's not that they're just not even acknowledging that Jesus is Messiah. Now they are trying to convince other people that he's not. And there are people today who want to do the same thing. The Jews' reaction to the gospel was just the opposite of using their mouths to confess Jesus as Lord. They were using their mouths to speak ill of Him and deny Him. We've got to make sure that the message goes out into the world by whatever means possible. Their entire careers, wireless operators on board U.S. Navy and merchant ships, They'd only heard Morse code, all right? Morse code was the way that they would communicate by dots and dashes and, and those, kinds of, those kinds of things, all right? And it would come through their headphones and they would write things down. We used that on our telegraph system. It got to where it was over the airwaves and we used it out to our sailing vessels. However, a few days before Christmas in 1906, operators were informed that they needed to pay attention on Christmas Eve at 9 p.m., because a special message was going to be sent out. So they were prepared for that. So with, with curiosity, a lot of the ship's operators, they were there, and, and they were affectionately known as sparks. How's that for, for these, these, tele, these Morse code people? All right. And they tuned in as they were informed, and as they were waiting to hear this special message, suddenly they heard something that they had never heard before over the airwaves. In 1906, on Christmas Eve, they suddenly heard singing in a violin solo and a man speaking. 
So they called their captains and the other officers, and they all came in, and, and this had never come across the airwaves before. It's always been, whatever it is, you know. And now, and now they're hearing music, singing, and speaking. Now, the genius responsible for this was Reginald Fezenden. He's from uh, Canada. He had succeeded in transmitting voice and music over the airwaves. Fezenden, he played a violin solo of O Holy Night, and then he sang the last verse. He also then read about the birth of Jesus from the book of Luke, chapter 2. His account of the angels' song, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. It was heard out on these ships as if by some miraculous intervention. Fezenden concluded his broadcast by wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. Man, isn't it amazing that the first ever radio broadcast was one that proclaimed the gospel message of Jesus being Lord? Man, it, just, it gives me goosebumps to know that. I wonder, did anything spark in the hearts of those sparks? You know, didn't it set them afire? What was it about this night that changed their lives? This morning, I pray somehow that this message has also sparked you into making a difference in how you share your faith with other people. I don't know. Maybe there are some of you who need to go to Brazil as a missionary or to Russia heaven forbid somebody here go to China undercover and take the gospel message with you I I don't know but I know that this church is not called to sit here we're called to send out people with the gospel message The question is, will you be the one? Or will you be one of many? Maybe it just means that you take this message down the street to your neighbor. I don't know. But you can't ignore his call for us to proclaim it. People need to hear the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, I'm thankful that there were people in my life that told me about you, about your son, about the grace that is offered through him that forgives me of my sins. Father, I'm thankful that you have sent me out. You've called me to proclaim the good news about Jesus. The world needs to hear. Father, maybe there's somebody here today that they've just been waiting for someone to say go and they're ready to jump. Father, let us send them out so people can hear and believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's stand together.